Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 16, when we're traveling to 1958, and the 15th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Samuel Barber, for his opera, Vanessa. So, all right, Andrew, as we usually do, we'd like to talk about the composer and our familiarity with the composer first. So, now Samuel Barber is certainly a household name for most yeah. music people. So, what's your experience and thought of Samuel Barber and his music? Well, of the Pulitzer Prize winners that we've heard so far, he was actually the one that I knew the earliest and liked his music the earliest when I was in high school, I guess. I was playing some of his piano music and fell in love with Samuel Barber. And so one of my first papers in undergraduate was on the music of Samuel Barber. <laughs> Ooh, from know, undergrad music history? or Some undergrad music history, yeah. Wow. Music literature, as it was called back in the day. I had a music literature class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Samuel Barber I had an early infatuation, and then I... Um, by middle of undergraduate, I had kind of moved on and hadn't listened to Samuel Barber for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even through grad school, he, his name was, he kind of went through a phase where no one talked about him. Mm-hmm. And that kind of mm-hmm. coincided with when I was in grad school. Yeah, he's, it's strange. He's known for certain pieces, like everybody knows Adagio for strings. Right. Certainly, that's really the main one. Um, but, and then... What else can you? Uh, singers tend to really love singers Barbara. play sing yeah a lot and that's rec- actually where I've done most of his music, really since grad school is that my wife is a singer and so I've accompanied her on some of the pieces and um, of course now undergraduate recitals <laughs> regularly yeah, feature yeah. the music of Samuel Barber, um, but yeah his orchestral music isn't played very much I mean Knoxville Summer of 1915 that's yeah. performed pretty regularly. Um, but yeah, his instrumental music, not very much. Yeah, it, well, yeah, I've got a very, uh, it sounds like you're you're pretty fond of his music in general, at least you're... I have a tendency you, towards, you have a t- I, I, know, I know that you run hot and cold on the music of Samuel Barber, but <laughs> yes, I do, I'm, more, I do. <laughs> I'm more predisposed to uh, appreciate his music. Okay, that's fair enough. I uh, Maybe I'm a little colored by the fact of, the, of what he said about Ives. Uh, at one point, they asked Samuel Barber what he thought of Ives, and the quote was, quote, a hack who didn't know how to put a piece together. <laughs> so well, he's, he's off your list. Definitely now. on the blacklist for me, really, for, throw him out, out of here. Uh, yeah, because, uh, well, yeah, I, I do run hot and cold with the music. I like the first string quartet. I like the piano sonata. I think yeah. the, the, the piano last sonata and it is uh, fantastic. I think it's a beautiful mm-hmm. work. Yeah, it's played a little overplayed, uh, and then some of you know, a few pieces here and there. But I, I guess I find his music a little twee or a little too <laughs> precious. Uh, it's kind of precious, and to me, it, it sort of lacks something. And this opera, as we get into Vanessa, this is our uh, third opera. Is that right? This uh, is our well. We had the two Minotti. I guess fourth. Uh, and then we had the Giants in the Earth. Giants that we in never the heard. Earth. Yeah. And so, so now fourth. we're into Vanessa. Yeah, this is one that I actually did see uh, when I was a student at Indiana University. They did a year of all 20th century operas, wow. and, which was pretty amazing. So I got to see Love for Three Oranges and Wozzeck and uh, Rape of Lucretia and all kinds of things. 
uh, but this was one of them. Vanessa was one of the ones they performed, and I remember liking it at the time and being interested in it, and uh, it's interesting to come back to it now. But it's it's kind of a fascinating, the whole idea of American opera, as we talked about with Minotti, and putting Americans in this great world of opera is kind of complicated, isn't it? And this, this piece is sort of complicated. It is, and I actually like this piece as kind of a prism to view the place of American opera. Uh, it's one that I've taught before. I, I'm not currently teaching it, but in a class I teach of music since 1945, this is this is the opera I teach to say, okay, let's talk about the issues surrounding American opera because it sits in so many different, it has its feet in so many different fields, and I think that gives it a lot of um, a lot of facets we can talk about. So uh, maybe we should start to dig in and look a little bit at the background of this opera. Telling the story. All right, so this was a Metropolitan Opera commission and a premiere. So Which was a huge deal at the time. Big deal, yeah, because if we're thinking back to our previous operas, uh, well, you had Giants in the Earth that was performed in North Dakota or something, and then you had the Minotti ones, which were Broadway, or right. more musical theater venues. So here's our first Pulitzer Prize winning opera that's on the big stage, biggest stage in the U.S. Well, that. and for them to commission an American, I yes. mean, that's still rare. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about you know a century and a half of the Metropolitan Opera, and it's still rare for them to commission and perform American opera. So, it was even noted at the time what a big deal this was. Um, I was looking through the New York Times, and I, I kind of likened it to you know how a blockbuster movie coming out now there'll be you know these breathless pieces about you know they've cast so and so in this movie and uh, mm -hmm. they're filming this and, and and they'll just be like updates. They did the same kind of thing for an opera. There were like weekly updates on, you know, who's been cast and it's about to premiere and it's very exciting. Um, it was enormous news at the time. Wow. How much of that do you think was because of Minotti's previous, uh, he wasn't, he was not a critic's favorite as we've learned, but he was certainly well known. Uh, how much, or do you think it was Barber or just the fact that it was Americans? I think it was the idea of an American opera at the Met. I think uh, whoever they had commissioned would have gotten the same treatment. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was, I mean, obviously, Barber was known. He was a known commodity. Um, people knew his music. He was one of the top composers that people spoke of at the time. So I think that did add a layer to it. But I think just the, the novelty of the Metropolitan Opera doing this is absolutely the reason it got such big press at the time. Definitely. And the, the elephant in the room, certainly, around this opera is the partnership of right. the two of them. And how, because we know that Barber actually had wanted to write operas before, had other ideas and tried a few. Yeah, for like 20 years he had, he had been yeah. trying to find a libretto. Right. But then, as I say, the elephant in the room is his partner was Giancarlo Minotti, and so he ended up being the librettist for this piece. And the director. And the director, yes, exactly. So, so it's very much a family affair. It was. It was. And a very gay affair, because you have those two, as well as Dimitri Metropolis, who was the conductor also was gay so another that adds kind of an element and there's some i think i read an article earlier maybe it was in the times or something talk or no it was in the, the guardian talking about how the reception of this opera and its conception may have been you could read a, a subtext maybe behind it as you can for a lot of operas like west side or musicals west side story britain things like that so uh, kind of interesting but yeah they they this, this, the text, the source material for this, it reminded me a little bit of 
Dorian Gray kind of has Dorian Gray elements yeah. to it. So what's What's well, from the, or... the Seven Gothic Tales? This is the, this is what they cite as the source. The Seven Gothic Tales by Isaac Dennison, which is the the non de plume of the Danish writer Karen Blixen, <laughs> um, and so they basically took the imagery, but then really crafted a new story. I mean, they wanted to say this is what it was based on, but really about the only thing they took from there is this idea of the the mirrors and the the kind of shadow self. So you have uh, in the opera, we'll get to the plot here in a moment, but you have the Vanessa, main character, is an older woman, and then you have Erica, the younger woman, and they are mirror images of each other, and then there are mirrors throughout the entire uh, set, and they talk about mirrors and portraits and all that kind of thing. So that's what's taken from this original story, but everything else almost is new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it has a lot of elements. We've talked a lot about Minotti and his, obviously being Italian, and his interest in Italian opera and Puccini aspect. It, this really strikes me as a kind of Puccini-esque theme and story. And, you know, Vanessa with the mirrors, you mentioned she has all these mirrors but refuses to look at herself because she can't, doesn't want to is the age she's beauty. getting older. Yeah, yeah. The yeah she's, the, she's the Blanche Dubois, right? She's the, yeah, yeah. From Streetcar yeah. Named Desire. She's the, the aging beauty who can't come to grips with the fact that she is aging. Mm-hmm, exactly. And you see, it, it is a pretty serious plot i'd say it is you've got very you've heavy got, you've got an unwanted pregnancy in here you've got affairs you've got kind of all the all the, the signs of dysfunctionalness in the mid in the 1950s which is always something to note because we the, the 50s are kind of glorified as this wonderful era where family values and everybody was everybody and everything was just so much simpler back then, but we, we know it wasn't the case. And so the fact that they're twisting or embellishing the original plot to fit in this time, I think is kind of interesting as well. Well, it also strikes me as it's an American opera, okay? And it's performed at an American theater, but it feels story-wise, like you said, Puccini, it's, it feels European yeah. in that way. And so it, it reminds me a lot of the first Minotti, not the Saint of Bleecker Street. Um, yes. But the console, the first Manani that mm -hmm. we listened to, it has that kind of um, feel of a European type of story and a European type of setting. Although the setting is it just it's generic 19 kind of 05, but it doesn't give <laughs> a specific place. Right. It doesn't give a specific place where it uh, takes place. But it does have this kind of feel of those older, really, I think you pegged it right with Puccini, those older Italian opera stories. And could that also, well, you want to get you wanted to mention the plot a little bit here give us a kind of a summary i mentioned a little bit so you've got vanessa who's the older lady and she had a her one of her former lovers her great anatole. love anatole yeah. so mm -hmm. the story concerns you know vanessa this older woman she's living in the house after her great love has left anatole and that's when she covers up the mirrors living there with her niece erica so the beginning of the opera anatole is returning he's coming back it's going to be this exciting day um, he shows up and it turns out that it's not the older Anatole, it's actually his son, who also is named Anatole. And you get this very uh, twisty kind of love triangle when uh, he is, he's really a cad and he's seducing both women. And he ends up impregnating Erica and proposes to her and she turns him down. And so then he goes to Vanessa and proposes to her and she accepts. And when Erica hears about this uh, and discovers that she's pregnant and that her uh, Aunt is going to be marrying Anatole. She actually runs out into the cold and basically freezes herself almost to death to uh, abort the baby. 
And then when she comes back in um, and is there in the house as Erica, as Vanessa and Anatole are leaving, she basically takes Vanessa's place and becomes the spinster waiting for her great love to return and closes up the house. And that's the end of the opera. So this lovely circle. That's a real uplifting. uh, Very (laughs) uplifting. (laughs) Great bedtime story for the kids. Feel good. Feel good. Kind of show there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So very dark kind of, and I think the music reflects that too. Uh, It's construction, which we'll get to in a little bit, but yeah, the, do you think this is an attractive type of story? I mean, it's a very operatic type of story. It's an operatic story. Yeah. So it has yeah. big emotions. It has big events. Um, everything is going to be there out there on display. Uh, it's not a very interior kind of story. No, it's a very exterior, no. which I think plays well on a big stage with people singing and, and these big houses. So, yeah, I think it's very um, operatic. Is it realistic? That's, uh, that's a different <laughs> question. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, well should we talk... Yeah, talk about some of the musical aspects of this piece. Behind the notes. Okay, so I'm curious about what you think. We can talk. I think we have to talk about it on two levels: the orchestration and the singing. Yes. So I'm curious. Yes. I'm going to start with the orchestration because probably is what most people knew him for. You talked about Adagio for strings. So I'm curious about what you think about the way that he uses the orchestra in the opera. Very coloristically, yeah. A very. Um, I, I know some of the critics said he, he didn't write very dramatically, or wasn't very. It didn't seem operatic in, in its scoring, but I think it is. I think that it's there's a lot of coloristic things, very, very sweeps, timbre, texture. Uh, I that's my favorite part of it, actually. I think of the music, just the the coloring and the, the orchestration behind it, less so the actual musical material. Yeah, but. Um, no, I, th- I agree that the colors are, are absolutely beautiful. The way he uses the, the, the timbres of the orchestra, are, it's it's amazing. Um, yeah. I think you hear that just right in the, the overture. I think the overture is uh, really gripping and really powerful. It gives you most of the musical material right there at the very beginning. Um, but it really, I think, sets you up for this kind of dark gothic tale. And yeah. really just because of the, the timbres that he's using. Yeah, definitely. And you've got a lot of different styles, too, which makes sense given... Well, he lives with Minotti, so I'm sure they were listening to a lot of <laughs> opera and talking about it all the time. Uh, but you you have those Puccini-esque sweeps, uh, you, the huge climaxes. Uh, you've also got more subtle things. Well, Barber's musical language has always been a little bit strange to me. It's You'll have these sudden flashes of extreme lyricism and then just this acerbic kind of uh, tart chromaticism mm-hmm. that just is kind of biting uh, it is like very much like that in this piece. So you have, it's that contrast. And I guess Minotti was sort of like that too, but it seems more in this case. Minotti was too much of a lyrical verismo uh, yeah. or kind of the, the tune. Well, but I think most of that chromaticism shows up in the orchestration, not in the vocal line. Right. The vocal line is much like we heard with Minotti. It's very lyrical and very yeah. forgiving to the voice. Um, I think most of the kind of spiny dissonances are really in the orchestration and what's if you strip that out and just listen to the vocal line, um, it would be very traditional and very straightforwardly lyrical. And he does, uh, does he, does each character have their own sort of style too? Oh, they really do. Um, both musically, uh, with the orchestration and vocally. Um, and this is to me where I think you get to this, this idea of the mirror image, uh, that you have, uh, Erica, who is much more tonal in 
well, even in her, her orchestration, she's more tonal, yeah. um, simpler, more stepwise motion in terms of her vocal line. Uh, she is the simple and naive <laughs> character <laughs> in her music as well as in the action on the stage. Whereas uh, Vanessa is much more volatile <laughs> in everything. Mm-hmm. Her yes. vocal lines jump all over the place. Um, those big sweeps, they mainly accompany what she has to say on the stage. Um, so you get a sense of her kind of back and forth between despair to joy to anger. I mean, she is all over the place in her um, <laughs> musical line. Uh, you get a sense of this. I, I pulled a little a little bit of a part from one section in the opera. Uh, and so I wanted to listen a little bit because I think you can hear first uh, Erica's line and what she's saying. This is uh, Must the Winter Come So Soon, which is probably her uh, most famous aria. And this is going to be the end of that aria, which is then immediately taken over by Vanessa, who sees Anatole coming. So she's like, basically, shut up, he's coming. <laughs> and so you get this big outburst. So you'll hear a little bit of their the contrast in their vocal styles here. So there's a great story about that particular aria um, because Erica originally didn't have her own aria in the entire opera. And so the story goes that the singer who was going to be performing the role of Erica, she was a young singer. No one knew uh, her. This is kind of her big uh, debut. Her name's Rosalind uh, Elias. And she basically went to the general manager, real being of the Met, and said, I don't have an aria. (laughs) And so they called it Barbara right there. And she had to tell Samuel Barber, I don't have an aria. I need an aria. So he wrote this little thing and kind of shoved it in there for her. Uh, wow. So that's where it, yeah, the chutzpah. Very, Mo- very Mozartian. Yeah, to just go up and then, then suddenly write it. Wow. Yeah, so that so that got put in there. But I think you can hear, I mean, this is beautiful and lyrical. This is, to me, kind of prime Barber, if you think about his songs and how he writes the voice. This is what I think of. And then followed by these kind of, you know, hysterical outbursts of someone like Vanessa. I think you can really hear in those that minute... <laughs> the distinction that he's making between these two characters. Mm-hmm. And we should say also the ending, well, it's actually not the last thing in the opera, but there's a, the final act ends with a, and I've seen it described as a quote, hypnotic quintet, mm. which has the name to leave, to break. And uh, what do you think of the quintet? And kind of the yeah, this is this... my, this is my favorite part of, yeah. the, of the whole opera. I think it sums up all the kind of themes really beautifully. And it does so. So, 
I figured this would be the part that you would like because it's so contrapuntal. And yes, I absolutely. Know yeah. that David I, Thurmar loves <laughs> counterpoint. <laughs> There's anything that we know anything from this podcast with, that's right. is that you love counterpoint. <laughs> absolutely. But it, but the counterpoint works really well. And it's almost Mozartian in the way that he employs it to have them singing their individual lines and basically telling their story of how they feel about what's gone, gone on. Um, and it works both with their individual line. You can follow one person, or you could hear the aggregate as they're building step by step each of the characters coming into this quintet um and so hypnotic yeah i would say it's absolutely mesmerizing Mm -hmm. so we can listen a little bit to that too So what's your impression of it since you brought it up? Oh, oh, great. No, that it's kind of, it's, this is a sort of an opera that doesn't work as well. Just listening to it. Cause I think you kind of have to see what's going on and, and the, there's a lot of talking sort of talk singing. Right. And so then when a moment like this comes in, it, yeah, it, it, you don't really know what's going on at first. And then it sort of just keeps building and building and all those different motives and themes come in. Uh, I think somebody would also mentioned that, uh, Barber uses a uh, build building thirds, I think, mm. for the intervals, which some, I think another composer we've talked about did that too. But you start to hear the same kinds of motives and patterns coming through that we've heard earlier in the opera. So it's, it, it works well as a summation type. It of does. Piece. Yeah, if I was going to tell someone to get a, if they wanted to get a taste of what Vanessa is like, this is what I would point them to. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So. It's interesting as well, uh, the operas, the, the version that we know, or the, the version that I've always known of the Metropolis one, is longer than, it underwent some changes, didn't it? It underwent some changes, so maybe it's time for us to uh, dig a little deeper in, uh, <laughs> if we can start seeing its reception, and then what we think about this opera. Hit or miss. All right, let's just start with the, uh, the first review from the New York Times. So this is uh, Howard Taubman. This is what he had to say. He, he first had to make a point that after 11 long years, they produced a new American opera. <laughs> Which I think, uh, actually, but, I think the previous one might have been Howard Hansen's Marymount. Uh, I remember seeing oh, that. Oh, wow. That was another commission. So I think it might have been, that might have been the another one. Another Pulitzer winner. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Well, this is what Taubman wrote in the Times. He said, it need not be claimed that Vanessa is a masterpiece. <laughs> so Ralph All right. just <laughs> Operatic masterpieces are in shorter supply these days than man-made satellites, and the 19 other American works ventured by the Met in the last half century were not exactly for the ages. But the new piece is a collaboration of two gifted men, Samuel Barber, who wrote the music, and his close friend, Giancarlo Minotti, who provided the libretto. 
It is professional. It has atmosphere. It builds to a moving climax. That's so not exactly effusive, but very positive. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And then after that, it went over to Salzburg. Didn't quite have the same reception. And one of the big complaints, I know you've got the quotes and stuff, but one of the main complaints was it's very un-American sounding. And I'm not sure why that was such a criticism. Were they expecting people? I think they were expecting Porgy and Bess. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they that's what they would have known of American opera at the mm-hmm. time. So I think that's where they were, where their mind was going. Yeah, let me read you. So uh, it goes to Salzburg that summer, and then it comes back and the Met produces it again one year later, the following January after the premiere, which was pretty remarkable on the part of the Met to do it two years back to back like that. So in the second go round, uh, Howard Taubman again reviewed it. Um, and he, in his review, went through and kind of talked about what the reception in Salzburg had been. He had some great quotes, and I just love this. He said, one reviewer said the opera was, quote, enough to make one cry. This book is simply disgusting. <laughs> Ouch. Another called the composer, Samuel Barber, a collector and publisher of a musical anthology. That's not a compliment. And this is the, yeah, this is the best uh, of Dimitri Metropolis, who conducted both in Salzburg, like he had in New York, said, Uh, We have seldom heard so fine a musician conduct such poor music. (laughs) They were wow, that's a harsh review. (laughs) Why? Really harsh to it in Salzburg. Do you think it's because the because of the fact that it's not really American, apart from it being in English, it's not. It it doesn't doesn't seem to be set in America. It doesn't seem to be to have that American ethos to it. It's more of a European veneer. So they're playing in yeah, their sandbox. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It should have been set in uh, I, California or, or New York City or something else. That which it could, could have, been. have been and not change the story yeah, at all. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's... I think that probably is part of it. I think the bigger part is the time. Mm-hmm. So 1958. Um, this is the time, especially in Europe, of you know hard-edge modernism. Uh, yeah. This is Boulez. This is Stockhausen. Mm-hmm. This is the, the whole Darmstadt scene was going strong. And so I think if you have a tonal, conservative, American opera, then it has multiple strikes. I mean, all of those three things, <laughs> tonal, conservative, and American, are, are all pejoratives yeah. if you're in Europe at the time. And so I think that there was no way they were ever going to accept it just because of those qualities. Even in the city of Mozart, Salzburg? Especially <laughs> in the city of Mozart at that time. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. But, but fortunately for our purposes, the... Pulitzer Prize Committee was not so skeptical of it, uh, and they no. So I wanted to read the the report here from our usual friend Chalmers Clifton. Yes, of course. So this is uh, 1958, and he says the advisory committee on music recommends the Pulitzer Prize in music to Samuel Barber. He has a secure reputation as a symphonic composer. In this, his first opera. Mr. Barber demonstrates that he has great talent for the lyric theater and an amazing understanding of operatic techniques. There has been wide discussion of the merits of libretto and music, which I know you're going to talk about in a second. Oh, yeah. There may be some difference of opinion in degree as to how good an opera Vanessa is. The advisory committee is convinced, however, that it is a real achievement for an American composer in a field of growing importance and opportunity. 
So there you have it. So they they said critics mm. be damned. We think it's uh, worth it. Well, they also qualified yeah. it though by saying we think that it's not that they went it's a masterpiece. <laughs> they said it's important because it's an American writing an opera, which is fascinating to me because they've been awarding operas That's like true. every other year for the past That's decade. True. This is the fourth one of the. 1950s so that's i think that's a bizarre kind of statement on on behalf of the pulitzer committee in that case well you want to know the uh, other the the, the runner-up of course we got we another runner-up uh the well-known piece cantata of night and the sea by robert palmer not not, not, uh, <laughs> not the pop singer. Not that Robert Palmer. <laughs> not addicted to love, Robert Palmer. Here. Not addicted to no, love. No, this was a, a, a doesn't really have much to say about Mr. Palmer's. Oh, it says uh, this fine-sounding, adroitly constructed composition seems almost perfect within its somewhat limited scope. Ooh. Hmm. Mm. Uh, in other words, Mr. Barber's opera was much discussed and seemed more important. So. There you have it. So could uh, is it? Does it? Are we going back to the old boys in in network again here? It's time. Well, I think it was it Barbara's, was Barbara's turn, turn, right? Yeah, not especially if Minotti had won twice already. Yes, you're not going to give it to <laughs> it's time for Robert Bar Palmer at this point. <laughs> well, the history I think of the the opera kind of bears out that kind of lukewarm, even lukewarm yeah. acceptance by the Pulitzer Committee because so Barbara comes back to it. 1965, it's going to come back to the Met. And he revises it and shortens it. So it goes from four acts down to three acts. And then it kind of disappears. Yeah. And it really isn't until the 1990s that it begins to get some legs and be performed. And that's when I think, you know, you said you heard it at IU. I think that um, it's become more common for colleges and smaller operatic companies to perform it. The Met has not performed exactly. it since. That says something. The Met shelved mm -hmm. it. Uh, and in fact... Um, in 1973, I think there was a fire and the original sets were all destroyed and the Met just went, oh, well, we're not going to be performing that piece, basically. Well, here's a question. Uh, Do you think they didn't want to go back to it after the big flop of Barber's second opera of Antony and Cleopatra? That was a complete disaster. Maybe they just that had could enough. Be. All right. Well, thanks, Sam. That could be. Although I think this is a much more successful opera than Antony definitely, and Cleopatra, definitely. personally. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And so... The, the reception of it has been really kind of up and down. So you said that they thought in the Pulitzer Committee, he had a fine sense of theater. Virgil Thompson, <laughs> writing about Samuel Barber, said the man has no <laughs> sense of theater. So he thought the exact opposite. That seems so subtle, too. Virgil Thompson would never say something so subtle like that, right? <laughs> he would never be that subtle. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> uh, and then it, it was uh, revived um, again. The Times covered it in 1996, uh, this time... A review from Alex Ross, and it was performed. Um, da, 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 da. Oh, it was performed again in 1996. So Washington Operas uh, redid it in 1996 in a co-production of the Dallas Opera. And this is what Alex Ross had to say about it: The principal reason for the opera's neglect is probably Giancarlo Minotti's soggy libretto. <laughs> soggy libretto. <laughs> And then later on, he says, what this ponderous material does supremely well is play to the composer's strength, particularly his penchant for melancholy rumination. That's that's great. So, that's well said. Melancholy rumination. That's, that's kind of. So Ross put this at the feet of the, the kind of failure historically at the feet of Minotti and said, 
he wrote an, uh, an opera that played to Samuel Barber's strengths, but not to basically the stage's strengths. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's kind of held true. And if you look through it, look at history or the reception of the two composers, certainly Barber has lasted and endured much more than Minotti has. So you can, uh, it kind of all fits in to that. Yeah, Minotti has endured, as we've said before, much the same way the Nutcracker has endured as a Christmas <laughs> perennial. perennial. That's right. <laughs> That's... But the rest, yeah, not, not much. So the rest is really, I mean, occasionally you'll hear of the, the operas being performed by student yeah. groups at different colleges and universities, but definitely not in the major houses. So then with all that in mind, is this a hit or a miss for you? Uh, this is actually a hit for me. I... It's not one I don't think I would return to again and again and just listen to all the time. Um, but if I'm in the right mood, yeah. I, the music is beautiful. Um, I agree. Howard Taubman said that it kind of, it accelerates as it goes on and gets better as it goes on. And I think that's true. By the time you get to the end, that final quintet is, I mean, it yeah. packs a wall. So I think the opera does get better as it goes on. I agree with him in that. But I think overall, yeah, it's a hit. I'll give you? it a qualified hit. I think it's important. Qualified, <laughs> qualified. hit. It's a, it, because it's important historically, and it's a, a major work by an American composer that, in for, uh, for the a genre that's not really thought of as an American genre, and it did have a lot of success. I think people still perform parts of it, and so the fact that it is still performed gives some some credence to it. Uh, I find it, I, I, that's interesting. It is sort of a slow starter. It, it's kind mm -hmm. of boring at the beginning. And that, yeah, it is. and then it gets kind of picks up and gets more interesting. So, but I think, yeah, I, I, I would like to see another performance of it. I would go if, if Kansas City Lyric Opera or would do something like that, I would definitely buy a ticket because I think it's, it would be worth seeing yeah. it again. Well, for me, of the four operas of the fifties of the Pulitzer, this is, I think the top. Interesting. I, Hmm. I might go with the console and then this, but I, uh, I don't know. I have to think about it some more, or maybe we both just really want, we're just clamoring for giants in the earth. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we're imagining it's the best of all of them. Cause we don't know what it sounds like or looks like. So it has yeah. to be. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Samuel Barber. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between the episodes. And finally, join us next episode, long-awaited <laughs> exploration of John LaMontagne and his concerto for piano and orchestra. Until then, keep listening. <laughs>